Father, we thank you for uh, giving Scripture to us. We thank you for uh, revealing your, your character, revealing your ways, revealing your truth, uh, and, and ultimately revealing yourself. We do ask as we come to your word, God, that you would give us help. Lord, we know that um, we, we have some, some things that are, that are barriers um, in our way when we come to your word. There, there is the barrier of, uh, of, of understanding. Sometimes we, we just do not have the spiritual wisdom and insight to, to, to understand. And then sometimes we have, we have pride operating in our hearts where, where we do understand, but we don't want to understand, or we do understand, but we don't want to receive. And so, God, I just pray that you would help each of us, uh, myself included, Lord, that we would receive uh, the truth of your word, knowing that you give it to us in love, you give it to us in care, uh, you give it to us in tenderness because you, you desire uh, for us to follow you, to flourish, and to display uh, your ways and your kingdom. And so God, help us to be receptive to your word. Help us to be uh, humble and contrite, Lord, that we would posture ourselves under, uh, under your authority, which is, which is spoken to us uh, through scripture. Help us also, God, not to just come and un understand this text but to understand it and to, to understand it robustly, which, which means seeing Christ in it, which means seeing Christ as the centerpiece, seeing Christ as the hero, seeing Christ as the one that we must look to, the one we must trust in uh, if we were to walk in the wisdom and the ways of this passage. So God, come and do all of those things for those of us, uh, Lord, that are, that are anxious, that are carrying burdens, Lord, that, that are, are weighed down by our sin, by our guilt. God, would you bring relief uh, through, through, through this text or through the preaching of Christ? Would you come and would you meet with us? We know that you will. You promised your word does not come back void. And so, God, we trust that you will do great things in, in each of us, Lord, through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to look at a very large section of Scripture this morning. And it's a very large section of Scripture because this section of Scripture is written to a group of people who were very, very, very confused. So to set some context and trajectory for what we're going to look at this morning, we're looking at uh, the letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the Corinthians, uh, a church in a diverse, uh, densely populated global city where really anything went. And in the midst of this church, the Apostle Paul comes, preaches, uh, or in the midst of the city, rather, the Apostle Paul comes, preaches the good news of Jesus, and God works in power so that many people in the city of Corinth receive the good news of Jesus and a church's birth. And as this church is birthed, there are all sorts of uh, challenges because these Corinthians, even as new believers, even as disciples of Jesus, they struggled with the tension of following the wisdom of Corinth, the wisdom of the world, and following the wisdom of God, the teachings of Jesus. And so they struggled deeply. We've, as we've looked at this letter, we've seen them deal with uh, division and factions within their church, where some people said, I only roll with Paul and his preaching. And other people said, well, I only, I only mess with and roll with Peter and his preaching. Or you know what? I only rock with Apollos and his preaching. And there were divisions and factions within their church. They were following the ways of the world, which said, uh, uh, identify by your tribe rather than the ways of God. They struggled with greed. They struggled with asserting their own rights, which led to them suing one another within the church over trivial little things. They struggled with what does it look like to follow Jesus in a, in a, in a highly expressive and immoral and kind of anything goes uh, uh, sexual context like first century Rome. They struggled with that, and so the Apostle Paul writes to them in chapter 5 saying, no, it is not good for, for, a, uh, for, for this man to be, with, uh, to be with his stepmother. This is not good. This is, this is not the way of Jesus. And so he lays out a sexual ethic for them in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And now we step into uh, chapter 7, 
And here in chapter 7, we see Paul kind of like a Q&A session with the Corinthians, now beginning to address more of their deep concerns and their deep confusion. And as we look at this particular section, we're going to find out that there was great anxiety in the Corinthian church. There was great anxiety and worry in this church. And here's where the anxiety and worry came from. You have some people in the Corinthian church that when a man was with his stepfather said, amen, we're free to do whatever we want in Christ. So they preached cheap grace, do anything. And others in the church saw that and responded to that and said, no, that's not right, but you know what you, know what you should do? That, that is so wrong that what you should do is, is married people shouldn't even have sex. You should, we should all just be single. We should all just be celibate. We should all just be extreme. And so within the church, you had these two radical extremes to which both Paul says, no, neither of those are the way of Jesus. And so in the early parts of chapter 7, Paul has to say, hey, sex between a husband and wife, that's a great thing. You should, you should, you should, you should do that. That's a good thing. That's a gift. And now all sorts of people in the church are deeply confused. And so Paul begins in this section to answer their questions about singleness, what do, what do I do if I'm single? These people are, are saying I can do whatever or what I want, and, and these people are saying to be single is to be more spiritual. Is that really true, Paul? What, what do I do? You also had people in the Corinthian church who, uh, who, were, who, who were married, and one of them comes and hears Paul preach. One of them becomes a Christian. The other one does not. And so now they're asking Paul, wait a second, what, what do I do? What does this mean? And so they were anxious and they were worried. You had some people within the church who were of low status. And then they became believers, and they, and they were wondering, well, if I'm of low status and low social position, can I still follow God, or do I need to try to get to the next status and, and get a better job and get a better career, and that would be better for me as a Christian? And so all of these worries, all of these anxieties, which sound similar to our stories, yes? Worry and anxiety? And so Paul begins to speak to all of these different various things that kept the Corinthians tossing and turning with fear and concern particularly around marriage and singleness, but also around vocation and position. This text is deeply important to us because we battle this constant cycle of feeling like we need to get to the next thing in life in order for life to really matter. That's what the Corinthians were dealing with as well. And so this text is given to us by God to help free us from various anxieties and allow us to channel our concern away from worry and towards devotion. So let's jump into the text. We're going to look at a big portion, walk through it in sections, and hopefully God will give us insight and will achieve uh, through, through this text the, the aim of freeing us from worry and helping us towards devotion. Chapter, six, or chapter 7, uh, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says this, Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul is saying, I wish everybody was single, but both singleness and marriage are a gift. Paul begins to address the different concerns in the church. Verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than burn with passion. To the unmarried, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So Paul is saying here, Jesus himself has said this for us. I'm, I'm pulling from Jesus' quote. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, Paul says this is authoritative, but Jesus himself did not directly say this, but it is still authoritative as I am his apostle. 
I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed or the engaged, I have no commandment from the Lord. So Jesus did not directly say something, but I give an authoritative teaching as an apostle. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Amen? And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for our own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies... She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. 
big chunk of scripture for us. Let me walk through the, the various people that are spoken to and then do some, some application for us because we don't have exact parallels for, for all of our situations, but we do in some ways. And the, the central idea that is driving this text is deeply helpful uh, to, to each of us, I believe. So notice the first thing that Paul is going to do for us in verse 7. He's going to describe singleness and marriage both as a gift, both of them as a gift, both are gifts. And so from that, Paul then builds on that foundation to address the various concerns within the Corinthian church. He says this in 6 through 9, to the unmarried and to the widows, right? People, uh, people who uh, lost uh, a spouse and people who did not have one. He says this, stay single. You can do more damage for the kingdom when you're single. But if you can't live in self-control, get married to another follower of Jesus. To the married in verses uh, 10 through 11 and 39 through 40, he says this, Do not divorce, but if you divorce for a, for a biblical reason, remain, uh, remain unmarried. Don't, don't divorce for an unbiblical reason and then get married again. You, you're, really, you're, you're really committing adultery by doing so. Don't, don't do that. And then one of the most interesting sections, verses 12 through 16, to the uh, situation that was probably common in Corinth, that common enough to occur here in the letter, that you have two, uh, two people two married folks. One of them becomes a disciple of Jesus and now begins to wonder, what does this mean? Because I became a Christian, but, but, but she's not, or she became a Christian, but, but he's not. What does this mean? What, what, what do I do? And Paul then says this to them, if your unbelieving spouse who knows that you just can't, became a believer, if they're okay with that and they don't want to separate from you, stay married. Don't, don't cause trouble. Continue. Stay, stay as you are. And notice the reason he says for this. He says, your sanctification, your holiness, in a strange way, will rub, rubs off on them. I think the Corinthians were concerned that if I am a, now a believer and this person is not a believer and we're married and we have this, this intimate relationship, look at what we just talked about the last couple of weeks, that, that, that sex, according to the Christian vision, is not just biological and casual, uh, and, and casual but, is, but is spiritual and sacred, as we talked about last week. The, the Corinthians were then wondering, well, well the, does that mean that, that we are now impure because of this, this marriage? And Paul says, no, actually it, it works a little bit the other way, that, that your holiness, that your position in Christ begins to, begins to impact the marriage, it begins to rub off on that so that Paul can say that, that they are made holy through you. Now, this doesn't mean that they have salvation, because later in 16 he says, uh, how do you know? You might lead to their salvation. But there is some sense in which, in this circumstance, there is a kind of rubbing off of the sanctification on the other, so that this marriage does not look unclean in God's sight, but looks clean. Now, we don't take this and say, well, I'm just going to marry whoever I want and do whatever I want. No, we've we got to look at exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here, but he is bringing comfort to the particular Corinthians in this situation. Then we get verses 17 through 24, where Paul begins to speak into the Corinthians' vocations, into their, into their, uh, into their careers, into their social positions, into the jobs that they worked. And Paul says this, to those in social, cultural, and vocational positions, the place where you were when God called you, when God drew you to himself, when God helped you to understand the gospel, when God gave you faith to see Jesus as he truly is, in the position that you were, you are free to remain there. You do not need to gain a new position or to gain a new status or to gain a higher cultural position in order to now become clean to God. God saved you just where you are, where you are so remain there with him. Paul doesn't say this to hold them down and hold down ambitions. Paul says this to relieve their anxieties. Notice one of the things we see in verses uh, 17 through 24. Paul begins to talk about circumcision. 
right? It says, hey, if you were, uh, if you were circumcised when, uh, when God called you, don't try to be- become uncircumcised. If you were uncircumcised when God called you and you became a Christian, don't try to be circumcised. What is he talking about? Well, here was the pressure in the first century in Corinth and in many of the churches. There was pressure when someone became a Christian because Christianity emerged from Judaism, there was pressure that if you were a non-Jew and you became a Christian, there was cultural pressure not just to believe in Jesus, but also to become Jewish. And the biggest mark of that was to be circumcised following the pattern of Abraham. So here you have in, in Corinth all of these believers who are not Jewish who come to know Jesus, and there's many other Christians in their church who are saying, oh, you're following Jesus now. Cool. When are you going under the knife? When are you going to get really devoted to Jesus? When are you really going to become a disciple of Jesus? When are you going to reach the next level of discipleship and devotion? Because it's not enough to simply believe in Jesus. You need, to, you need to really follow him robustly. You need to become like Abraham. And so do you see how that would lead to anxiety for the Corinthians? Imagine this. Imagine a new Christian comes into, uh, uh, imagine somebody here hears the gospel for the first time. They become, a, they become a, a Christian. They believe in the gospel. And then next week when they come back, you meet them. You find out, oh, you're, you're a believer now. Oh, cool. Awesome. Well, let me tell you this. This is what you need to do. And it's nothing about obeying God, but it's about a style of dress. It's about a way of talk. It's about a cultural assimilation, right? Think of the anxiety and the pressure that you would be placing on them. And think of how much that grieves God's heart because the gospel is not meant to be coming to us in a cultural form for every culture, but it's meant to enter each culture and take the redeemed cultural shape of that culture. Does that make sense? So people don't need to become Jewish believers in Corinth. They just need to be Corinthian believers, right? They need to be Egyptian believers in Corinth. They need to be Roman believers in Corinth. They don't need to adapt to this new cultural form. So they were deeply anxious about this. So Paul says, listen, remain as you are because that's where God called you. To the engaged in the single couples in 28 through 38, uh, Paul says this again, remain as you were. So if you were engaged before you became a believer, continue to be engaged. Unless they think Christians are weird and they leave you, then that's okay. But if you were single when you became a Christian, remain single. It's all right. Remain where you are because guess what? God is with you right there. He's seeking to calm their anxieties. This is the big why of the passage. If we look at verse 32 and 35 in conjunction, we get a, a saying that sounds like this. I want you to be free from anxieties, verse 32. And here's why, verse 35. I say this for your benefit. I want you to be free from anxieties, not to lay any burden upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your divided devotion to the Lord. Here is our big idea, the big thing for us to see, that worry and anxiety derails our devotion to God. Worry and anxiety derail our devotion to God. And there is almost no place in which we become more worried than when it comes down to singleness, marriage, and our career. And anxiety over singleness, anxiety over marriage, anxiety over our career and our social status creates an overflow of worry in our lives that derails our devotion to God. And God, in his loving, fatherly care, wants us to be free of those anxieties in order that we might enjoy him and live a life of devotion to him. Particularly in this passage, we see this in the relation to singleness, that singleness and marriage are both callings and gifts from God in which we are to display devotion. So if God wants us to be free from anxiety and worry, and yet we are racked with anxiety and worry, how does this happen? 
I want to show us uh, a couple of things. I want to show us the problem. Here's what happens, right? Devotion to God is derailed by the worries of life. Here is the problem with worry. Here is what was plaguing the Corinthians. Here is what plagues us is this. What actually occupies our thoughts and drives our lives is not the idea of devotion to God, but it's the worry of what's next. We are constantly thinking about the what's next of our lives. Our devotion is derailed by worry because we think of what's next in my life, how do I achieve the thing that is next, rather than how do I be faithful and present right here. This is the great challenge for us. We get so distracted, distracted rather, from stewarding our current season of life because we are so anxious about achieving the next season of life. Anyone deal with this? Right? We see this when we look back with nostalgia on our lives, and we, we, we think maybe a, a senior year of high school, right? and, and a, a time where you're looking to the next transition in your life or different points of your life where you're looking to the next thing, and then you look back in retrospect and you realize that time period was so sweet and so special, and I totally missed it because I kept thinking about the next thing. The Corinthians were deeply, deeply concerned. How do I get to the next thing? If I'm, if I'm enslaved, how do, I, how do I get free like Paul said? Or if I'm of low class, how do I, how do I become free? Or if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm married, how do I become single because people said that's holy? Or if I'm single, how do, I become, how do I become married because these people say that's better? What do I do? Help me, help me, help me, help me. And they're racked by so much anxiety that it never crosses their mind to think about how do I use this time of my life, this position in my life, to be devoted to Jesus right where I am. What makes this difficult for us is we deal with the cross pressures of worry. What I mean by that is we deal with worry and anxiety coming to us in all sorts of angles and all sorts of ways, right? One of our biggest anxiety and worry problems, if you're anything like me, uh, your, your biggest anxiety and worry problem comes from yourself, right? You have internal anxiety and worry. But the other thing that makes us deeply challenging is we also have external anxiety and worry as well right? So we get a double dose. So within us, we, we, we think to ourselves, when will I arrive at this stage? And I'll feel a little bit more complete. If I'm single when I, and if I get married, I'll feel better. And then we have external pressure. We have societal pressure that says, well, once you reach this level, then, then you've really made it. Similar to the, how the Corinthians are dealing with the idea of circumcision and uncircumcision. If you become circumcised, then you're really a devoted believer, right? We deal with internal worry, but also external worry and pressure as well. If you're single, you probably caught this. If you're single and you've been around churches, not this church, this church is perfect, but if you're single and you've been in other churches, you, you've caught this idea, this subtle, um, unspoken thing, probably, and I apologize on behalf of those, those other uh, imperfect churches, uh, I apologize on their behalf. You felt this in all seriousness, right? You probably felt to some degree that to be single is to be second class, and then to be married is to become whole. And then to become married and to become and have kids is, is like to, to be really whole. Like, oh, you, you done made it now. You'd have come out of the Christian ghetto and you really made it. Right? This idea that these different stages of our lives are when things really begin to happen. Right? And that cross pressure of worry derails our devotion to God. We begin to think about this. We begin to think of how can I achieve that next thing in my life, whatever that is, more than how can I be present to Jesus right where he's placed me, right where I am right now. Worry derails devotion. But Paul's message is this in 24. Brothers and sisters, in whatever condition you were in when God called you, 
remain there. He doesn't say this as a burden. If you want to move forward, move forward, but don't feel that you have to move forward in order to really be with God or in order to really be something because God is with you right where you are, single or married, rich or poor, custodian, cashier, or clergy. God is with you right where you are, right now. Paul says to the Corinthians to calm their anxieties and to increase their joy in God. Thinking about marriage and singleness, these are two things that we often feel like we need to achieve or to get to the next thing in order to, to feel complete or in order to feel whole or in order to, to, to just feel like we're reaching the stage that we want to reach in our lives. Uh, there, is a, there is a joke among uh, seminarians that, uh, that, that builds from this passage, this idea that singleness and marriage are a gift, but people say, yeah, they're a gift, but singleness is a gift that, that, that nobody wants. And our devotion to Jesus can be, uh, can be derailed by worry, but our devotion to Jesus can also be derailed by deficient thinking. Our devotion to Jesus is often derailed by deficient thinking about our careers, deficient thinking about singleness, and deficient thinking about marriage. Jesus, may I remind us, Jesus himself was a single man, was he not? And, and was he not the most fulfilled? Was he not the most uh, embodied? Was he not the most engaged? Was he not the most compelling? Was he not the most interesting man? Tell that Dozeki has got to back off. Was he not the most interesting man and most compelling person to walk God's earth? Could, could we say that Jesus did not have intimate, emotional, meaningful, fulfilled connections with other human beings? He did as a single person. And so while it is great and it is good and it is godly for us to desire things that are good and godly, it is foolish of us to present to others or to believe the lie ourselves that to be married is to be more whole than it is to be single. Or to be single is somehow more whole than it is to be married. Both of them are gifts with different strengths, assets for the kingdoms, and different potential distractions away from the kingdom. So devotion is derailed by worry, but it's also devotion uh, derailed by um, deficient thinking. Singleness, Paul says in verse 7, is a gift. And this phrase gift is the same gift language he's going to use in chapter 12 when he talks about spiritual gifts, when he talks about healing, when he talks about teaching, when he talks about prophecy. All of these things are both gifts. And so it's important for us to understand this, that singleness is not an illness to be cured in order to begin the process of life. And marriage is not this thing that brings instant fulfillment. It's important for us to see both of these in a kingdom way. Both of them are gifts for the sake of the kingdom. Whether you are single or married, God is not looking at you as if you are somehow more complete or less complete, as, you, as if you have somehow arrived more closely to your de destination or you have somehow uh, taken the wrong turn on Google Maps and ended up away from your purpose. Both of them are gifts. Now, we may know this, from this passage already, but the question for us is, do we really believe this? Do you really believe that both of these are gifts from God for the sake of the kingdom? According to the New Testament, the relationship where love and community matters the most, its highest expression of that, is actually not the marriage relationship, but is the relationship of the local church. We need a rewiring in our thinking in order to calm the waters of anxiety. 
So I want to talk about how Paul says singleness and marriage are both gifts and, and what this looks like, the specific assets and the specific distractions that lead us away from devotion, what they each look like. Singleness, Paul says this, it's specific assets, right? Paul says this, uh, less worries, less worries. 32, more kingdom capacity. Says that the, that the married man or woman is distracted right? Anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please their wife, but the single man or the single woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please Christ, how to follow Christ, how to make an impact for the kingdom, how to disciple others, how to pray, how to give, how to serve, how to love, how to be engaged in their community. There is an inherent gift in singleness that leads to an inherited capacity to make a massive difference for the kingdom of God and to be devoted to Jesus in a unique, singular way part of the gift and asset of singleness. I want to give an encouragement to single people in our church. It is funny to talk about, um, to talk about church with other church leaders and to always talk about how, how much we end up praising people who are single in our congregations who end up doing so much and who end up stewarding this so well. Thank you. There are unique distractions to singleness, but there are unique assets. And let me tell you this particularly about singleness. Singleness becomes an arena of development for Christ-like character in a unique way. Marriage is as well, but singleness in its own way is a unique arena for the development of Christ-like character. Paul calls singleness and marriage a gift, which means each of these are gifts. And really, the Bible speaks about them as callings, the sense of vocations, the sense of, the sense of a job within the, the mission of the kingdom. That singleness is a, is a vocation within the kingdom. Marriage also is a vocation within the kingdom. And within the vocation or the calling or the season or the full life of singleness, there's a particular way in which Christ can be developed in a person that is special and unique to that gift. Think about this. A single person has less uh, ostensible worries tied to uh, a, a spouse or tied to children or those type of things, depending on your dynamics, which then allows you the, or provides you with the necessity to exercise more self-control. Self-control in your time. Paul would say, again, he says this phrase, burn with passage, self-control with your body. And these are characters of Christ-likeness. These are characteristics that, that embody Jesus. And so the arena of singleness allows for a time of a season or a full life of development of Christ-likeness to reflect Christ in a deep and unique way. The distractions of singleness, we know. There's the distraction of loneliness and longing. Paul talks about burning with passion. That applies to singleness. There's also the distraction of dating. Uh, dating in 2018, I read an article about dating apps. My goodness, how many gray hairs I just got just from reading that app or that, uh, that, <laughs> that article. I don't want to get near the app, but reading that article, how many gray hairs I just got. So there are many distractions that take us away from devotion to God, but there are many assets within this gift as well. The assets of marriage, according to this passage, are None right? <laughs> there, are, there are really none in this passage. There are many in the rest of the New Testament that Paul says, but really in this passage, there's, there's not that many. There's really not much that he outlines here, right? Because he is trying to make a particular point to these particular people, but there are many throughout the New Testament. We know this, that the asset of marriage is not, is not so much fulfillment, 
but it is really this, modeling the relationship between Christ and the church as the married couple puts on display the grace and the forgiveness, the love and the service that reflects Jesus to his people. But Paul here is really focused in on the the distractions of marriage, which helps us because oftentimes this is what we do in our deficient thinking. Oftentimes we only think of the challenges of singleness and the blessings of marriage. We do not think of the blessings of singleness and its challenges as well as the challenges and blessings of marriage. We think only of the challenges of what it is to be single and the blessings of what it is to be married. And so then we create this sort of second class here and this sort of first class cabin over here from our deficient thinking. What are the distractions of marriage? Notice what Paul says. You are distracted by worldly things. Your 401k, your savings account. You can idolize your spouse. You can idolize your family. You can fixate on, well, when we get this next house, we'll feel complete. Or when our kids are finally sleeping, then we'll be this. Or when we finally do this, we'll be this. And you get so fixated on all of these things, which are good and fine in and of themselves, but they fixate upon your mind so that now you have no longer thought about, well, what does it look like to devote myself right now to the Lord? Because of the anxieties and the stresses of marriage and this world. Paul shows us in this passage that marriage has more potential worldly distractions than singleness. So the question for us becomes this, what distractions right now are derailing you from being faithful to Jesus in the present? Put another way, are you embracing the specific assets and strengths of your calling in the kingdom right now? Or are you constantly thinking about what's next to the point that you're distracted from the present. Here is the root of this problem of worry. The root of our divided devotion is not that marriage is bad or good and singleness is bad or good, but really the root of it is this this idea, this belief within us that we become fulfilled through achievement. That if we were to achieve the next thing, If we're single, achieving the next thing might be being married, or if we're married, achieving the next thing might be getting that house or getting that raise or getting your organization to really recognize you, to put you in the position that you should be in so all those other jokers can take orders from you and the company can finally be in the green, right? Okay, That, that, that idea that through achievement, fulfillment, peace, wholeness will come through gaining the next thing. Moving to a different city, I'll finally feel this way. Getting out of this house, I'll finally feel this way, right? Finishing, uh, finishing the program, oh my goodness, I'll finally feel this way, right? We think that the next thing will bring us the very thing that we're longing for. And we need to take a lesson from, from Greek philosophy. Do we know our friend Sisyphus? Do we know our friend Sisyphus? Yes or no? We don't, okay. Do we, do, okay, how about that? We'll, we'll dumb it down. I thought you guys were really smart. We'll dumb it down. Do you know what a rock is? A rock? We don't know what a rock is. Okay, what is more basic than a rock? No, we know what a rock is, yes? Can I get a yes? All right, wake up, all right. We, got, we know what a rock is. Now, imagine a big rock. Very big rock. And imagine rolling that big rock up the hill and feeling like, yes, I got it up the hill where it's supposed to be. And turning back to leave, and the rock rolls back down. And you say, okay, this is not as planned. Let's roll it back up again. Roll it back up again. Got it, set, little, little, uh, little stopper blockers or something like that, paperweights, leave. Rolls back down. Let's get it again. Roll back up. That is what we do when we buy into the idea that the next thing will help us feel a little bit more whole than we felt before. Moving from single to married, I'll feel better. Yeah, maybe in some ways, but guess what? 
Achievement is not going to complete you. The next thing is not going to complete you. The next stage is not going to bring wholeness. The next stage is not going to bring peace. The next stage has its own worries and baggage. We buy into the idea that achievement will somehow unlock wholeness within us. Achievement will somehow lock peace inside of us. It will not do any of those things. And guess what? However many years old you are, you have that many years of experience that tells you achievement will not get it done. Do we not? We know this. And yet we buy into the lie over and over and over and over again, which is why the cure for this problem is not simply for us to do something different, but to believe something different. We must believe differently in order to be freed from the worries of the what's next bringing us fulfillment. And here is the cure for us. We need to see a couple of things that we need to do this. We need to think that achievement is not the thing for us to bring up fulfillment, but we need to think about faithfulness to bring us contentment right here in the presence. The second thing we need to understand is this. Paul speaks to it for us in the text. Look at verses 29 through 31. The cure for our undivided devotion that comes from our worry, the cure is this. One thing we need to see, first cure, we need to see the world for what it really is. We need to see the world for what it really is. There's a story uh, from, a, from a memoir uh, by an author named ta Coates. He talks about his big brother, uh, who he loved and who he looked up to. His big brother, uh, in, in, this is the 80s Baltimore, uh, his big brother um, was so excited to get a gold rope chain. Anyone ever had one? Gold rope chain? Okay, well, you're going to be tricked now that I mentioned this. You're going to think it's going to bring you fulfillment. It will not, but that's what his brother thought. If I get this gold rope chain in 1985 Baltimore, I'm going to be the man. Right, so he saves up and he gets it and he brings it home and his dad sees it. And his dad is like, let's melt that down because that is fake. Like, let's melt it down and test the metal. That is, that is not real gold. His brother's like, yeah, it is, dad. I saved up six months. He's like, okay, let's melt it down. Let's test it. If it's fake, I'll buy you two. If it's not, you're on your own. He's like, all right, all right. So take it to a place, melt it down. <laughs> Comes back, as you know, it is and his brother is crushed. There is a sense in which that we need to see the world for what it is in the same way that he needed an encounter to see that chain for what it is. Paul is showing us in, in 29 through 31 that this world is passing away, that this world is not what it seems, that because this world is passing away, because this world is not what it seems, the thing that you are thinking that you get next in order to get fulfilled cannot do what you think it will do. Because this world is passing away. It is not as it seems. Think about this. 75 years from now, how many people are concerned with you or the thing that you are fixated on right now? No one. 100 years from now, who is thinking of us? No one. Right? You're 15 minutes from now, who is thinking of us? Just us, right? There, we have to understand and we have to see the world for what it is. This thing is passing away. And Paul is trying to indirectly point us to something, that there is a real sense in which we will not find complete wholeness and fulfillment until Jesus Christ comes back to renew this world. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, this is a fundamental pillar of an understanding of the world that begins to free you from anxiety. When you understand that I can have true joy in this life, I can have true contentment in this life, but I cannot have complete joy in this life, that is not possible. 
I cannot have complete contentment in this life. That is impossible until Jesus comes back. Colossians 3 says this in such a way that it says, when Christ uh, returns, your life will appear with him. Your fullness, your full being, your, your full contentment, your wholeness will appear only in and through the return of Jesus. So we must see this world for what it is. I wonder this. I wonder this question. What would this season of your life look like if you understood that your full, true, and complete fulfillment only is attached to Christ? How would that change the worries and anxieties that are keeping you up at night? See, here's one of the cures for worry that derails our devotion. We need to shrink our worries down into proportion, and we need to inflate our dependence upon Christ. When we remember that the world is passing away, our worries begin to shrink into proportion. They don't disappear, but they shrink into their proportional size, and Christ becomes inflated in our minds, bringing His peace, bringing His presence, bringing His grace. The second thing that we need to do is this. We need to deny the lie that says, once I finally do blank, then I am really blank. We need to fight off the lie of achievement as bringing wholeness. Notice what Paul says in verse 24. Do not be a bondservant of men. Do not buy into the lie that our culture presents us or that the uh, Jewish believers were presenting the Corinthians at this time, that if you become this, then you will finally be a true disciple. If you become this, you will finally be whole and complete. Listen, the only if you will become this or the only life stage transformation that brings a significant shift in our identity, in our being, is moving from being outside of Christ to being in Christ, from being an enemy of God to becoming a child of God, from not knowing Jesus to receiving his grace, from being outside of the kingdom to entering into the kingdom. That is the only what's next, the only life stage transformation that brings a full renewal of who we are. And so our peace and our hope and our joy and our contentment are not tied up in what is next, but they're tied up in being attached to Jesus. And guess what Paul teaches us in this passage? 24, it says, remain where you are, where the Lord is. Guess what? Jesus, through the gospel, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, is so near to us that in whatever stage we are in right now, we are fully complete and loved and have his peace and his nearness right here. You do not have to get to the next thing to have more access to God. You do not have to get to the next thing to see, be seen as more complete in the eyes of God. God is as with you right now as he will ever be in any other stage of your life. Will you reach out and trust him? Will you say, shh, to the lie that says, when you get to what's next, life will feel more whole. Will you rebuke that lie in the name of Jesus? And will you embrace the truth that through the cross, Jesus Christ is with you, for you, and near to you right now? There is no next. He is near. Let me read you Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hidden 
with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Marriage will not fulfill you, though it is a gift. Talk to how many married people and find out how many married folks are lonely. Marriage is not the cure for your loneliness. The flexibility of singleness, though it is a gift, is not meant to fulfill us. Christ is our all. Christ is our hope. Christ is our peace. Let us trust in him, hold to him, and be devoted right now in the present, whatever stage God has us in. Let's take a moment to respond in silent prayer and confession. I would encourage you in this moment to go before God and say, God, what do you have for me from this text? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you, if you feel comfortable, to simply ask and say, God, if, if Jesus is true, if any of this is real, would you make this known to me? Let's pray silently and I'll pray aloud as we continue to worship.